you know, the other day I was on YouTube and I just happened to be watching this clip from this movie called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, starting in Close Cage, in which he basically plays a parody of various characters that he's played in previous movies. And so basically in the context of the scene, Nicolas Cage is talking to another character in the film, and he's basically pressuring this guy to name his third favorite movie of all time. In response to which, the guy basically says to Nicolas Cage, my third favorite movie of all time is Paddington 2, as a result of which Nicolas Cage is shocked. And in response, the other character says, well, look, I, I cried throughout the whole film, and it basically wanted me to, to be a better man. And so what happens is that the two characters decide to, to watch the movie together. And so then the scene suddenly shifts, and so now you see Nick Cage basically crying during the end credits of Paddington 2, during which he basically says, you know, Paddington 2 is incredible. And so given all that, I thought it would be kind of helpful to give a spoiler-filled reflection on Paddington 2, which I agree is completely incredible. And so as a matter of background, Paddington 2 is obviously the sequel to Paddington 1, right? So the sequel was made in 2017, the original came out in 2014. And both movies are obviously based on a series of children's books by Michael Bond, basically revolving around this talking bear who is taken in by this family living in England. Anyways, with regards to the basic plot of Paddington 2, Paddington, again, is living with this English family in, in this community called Windsor Gardens. Uh, the family's called uh, the Browns. And basically, Paddington has been really helpful in terms of other people living in the community. And so, for example, he helps someone pass his exam, he helps another person uh, to avoid getting locked out of his own house, and he also sets up two other people in a romantic sort of way who are both living within the same community. But in the meantime, he's trying to save up money to buy this antique pop-up book of the city of London, which he eventually intends to give to his Aunt Lucy, who's living outside the country, on the occasion of her 100th birthday. But it just so happens that one night while walking by the antique store, which has the pop-up book, Paddington notices that someone is trying to rob the place, and uh, basically he pursues this guy, but eventually is framed for the crime of stealing this antique pop-up book. And so Paddington is basically locked up in prison, but while he's there, he, he kind of makes the most of it, right? And so he basically wins over the other inmates through his relentlessly positive and, and cheery attitude. Some time goes by, and eventually Paddington, because of a certain misunderstanding, thinks that the Brown family has abandoned him, as a result of which he agrees to partake in this prison break, led by a fellow inmate, this guy named Knuckles. But then what happens is that much to Paddington's shock and disappointment, after escaping from the prison, Knuckles and the rest of the escapees, they basically go back on their promise to help Paddington prove his innocence in favor of basically leaving the country. Fortunately though, Paddington reconnects with the Brown family. They clear up that earlier misunderstanding and they tell him on top of that that the real culprit, the real thief, is to be found on a particular train and so they kind of go forth in hot pursuit. And so what ends up happening is that once everyone's on the same train, they find evidence to convict the real thief and to prove Paddington's innocence. But then tragically what happens after that is that Paddington is trapped in the rear caboose, which then falls into the river. And at first it seems like Paddington is about to drown, but then suddenly Knuckles and the rest of the gang, they come back and they save him. But still, because of his injuries, Paddington falls into a deep coma for a period of three days, before finally waking up in the safety of his own bedroom on the occasion of Aunt Lucy's 100th birthday. And at first, Paddington is disappointed that he wasn't able to get that pop-up book for his Aunt Lucy. But then the Browns invite him to leave his room, outside of which he finds various members of the community, who go on to tell him all the different ways in which he really impacted their lives. And then on top of that, Mrs. Brown tells Paddington that basically everyone pulled their money together to buy a plane ticket to bring Aunt Lucy to London to, to see it for herself. 
And so basically the movie concludes with Paddington opening the door and seeing his Aunt Lucy. And so they embrace, and so Paddington says to her, happy birthday. Okay, so that's kind of a quick summary, if you will, of the entire movie. And I have to say right at the outset that for me, um, certainly Paddington 2 is one of my favorite movies of all time. And for sure, I cried throughout the entire film, and it does make me want to be a better man. And you know, I think one of the reasons in particular why I really love this film is because it really brings out strongly this theme of, of how we're called to cooperate with God's grace to bring about the grace of conversion in the midst of, of a messy and, and sinful world. And so just to kind of bring it back to the film, obviously one way that Paddington tries to bring people back to the light or to the good, however you want to frame it, is through the strength of his good witness and through his good example, right? So think about his efforts in the community or in the context of the prison. And so shades of John chapter 13, where the Lord says very famously, people shall know that you are my disciples based on the love that you have for one another, right? And so what he's doing here is that he's highlighting the importance of having a high degree of love, especially when it comes to matters of evangelization and giving witness to the Christian thing. But you see, what's interesting is that the movie actually takes it one step further. And in a certain sense, this is why I love the movie so much, right? And so basically it asks the question implicitly, what do you do if good witness is not enough? What do you do if you're being nice and kind and generous, but it's not enough to bring people away from the darkness and into the light? Well, in this particular situation, the solution, if you will, is to basically trust the Lord. And that's a solution that's put forth by the gospel time and time again in all sorts of different ways. Again, to trust in the Lord, and in particular, to trust that ultimately He is the author of conversion. And so even though it's true that without the Lord I can do nothing, the corresponding reality is also true. With the Lord, all things are possible. And again, this is precisely what you find up and down the gospel, right? And so think, for example, of the gospel of Matthew chapter 18, where the Lord talks about how to deal with difficult people. And so first of all, he says that if you have a, a beef basically with someone, take it to them directly, right? So one-on-one -on -one conversation, then bring a witness to kind of verify things that have been said, and then take it to the church. And then what happens at the end? He basically says, well, look, if all that stuff doesn't work, then treat this person like a sinner and a tax collector. And at first glance, you might look at that and think like, what? Like, what does that mean, right? But Pope Francis actually has a really interesting commentary on his passage where he says that that particular step represents this idea of trusting the Lord, again, being the author of conversion. And in particular, this expression of treating this other person like a sinner and a tax collector, in a certain sense, is emblematic of having the humility to recognize that there are certain things which can't be solved through human effort alone, but instead can only be solved by Christ himself. You'll notice a similar principle being articulated in the context of the story of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. And so in the context of that particular story, what you'll notice is that an important prerequisite to Christ doing the miracle of feeding the 5,000 people is that he asks the disciples to give him everything they have. And the whole idea, of course, is that even though it's only five loaves and two fish, Christ wants it all the same. And more to the point, even though it's clearly not sufficient for the task at hand, that's okay, because the Lord is able to multiply our efforts to bring about a real solution to any number of different problems faced in the world today. But that brings us to the third example that you find in the Gospel. Name of the example of the life of Christ himself. And so clearly, when you look at the gospel, many people are won over to the Christian thing simply through Christ's words and through the strength of his witness. So you think about people following him in the aftermath of being healed, or you think about people like the 12 disciples. 
But then, of course, at the end of the story, what happens? It's pretty clear that Christ's teachings, His miracles, His witness, these things by themselves are not enough to bring about the salvation of the world. And so, therefore, He needs to die. He needs to suffer and die on the cross and then subsequently come back from the dead. Which speaks to the fact that ultimately what saves the world is not so much our words, our witness, our love even. What brings about the salvation of the world is in fact the Pascha mystery. The suffering and death and resurrection and glorification of Christ. Such that all of us might look back and say truly, by His wounds we are healed. And of course that's precisely what you see in the context of the film. And so even though Paddington obviously achieves again great success through the power and strength of his witness, it's not enough. And so what ultimately needs to happen to win back Knuckles and, and people of his ilk is that Paddington actually needs to die. And of course, that's exactly what we see at the end of the film. And so Paddington effectively drowns, which of course is emblematic of baptism, right? The death of the old self and being reborn in the image of Christ. And then of course, he's in a coma for three days, paralleling of course, Christ being in the tomb for three days, following his death on the cross. And that, of course, is followed by the resurrection and, funny enough, the ascension into heaven, where Paddington comes face to face, finally, with his Aunt Lucy. Not unlike how Christ ascends into heaven to finally behold the face of his Father in heaven. And perhaps I might suggest that that particular detail in the film, again, this reunion between Paddington and his Aunt Lucy, which again is emblematic of the ascension into heaven, is really instructive in terms of capping off everything we've been talking about today. Because I think the idea that's being conveyed here is that when it comes to evangelization, it's true what Mother Teresa says, right? God calls us not so much to be successful, but to be faithful, right? And so practically speaking, what this means is that when we try to cooperate with God's grace to bring about, again, the grace of salvation in the context of this broken and sinful world, and we find that things aren't working, and we turn, therefore, to God to kind of fill in and make up for the gaps in terms of our ministry or however we want to frame it, that is actually really pleasing to the Lord. And so given all that, when we finally come before the Lord and we present our shortcomings in terms of our particular ministry to Christ, not so much as, as failures full stop, but rather as opportunities again to trust that God ultimately is the author of conversion, He will say to us in response, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the rest of your master. And may God bless you all.